Anybody traveling the rest of this summer, July or August? A couple of you? Okay. Family trip? Okay. So picture yourself with 10 family members. For some of you, this is a stretch. For some of you, that's a small family gathering. And the one you want to get stuck with in the kitchen the least, you get stuck there and they ask you a question about Jesus. And you're shocked by their humility. They're not asking to poke at you. Something's happened. You don't know what it is in their life. And they want to hear you talk about your relationship with Jesus, regardless of whether they're Christian or not. You might be a Christian, but they see something in in you that gives you peace or joy. They're not a follower of Jesus. And something's happened and they ask. You know what you would say? I don't. This has happened to me. Literally. The one I want to be in the room with the least. And then they ask me a question. I'm startled by their humility. And even more startled by their question because we, we all ask our questions of the faith differently. We ask our questions about life differently. Have you noticed this? Any of you with children, no, because your children ask questions that you've thought about what they're asking, but not exactly the way they're asking it. Those of you that are blessed with good friends, same thing. You interpreted a situation totally differently, and if you were listening to them, and they were listening to you, it was amazing how differently we understand and interpret. And it's... It, It's very challenging because the gospel does not change. It's one of the most uh, peaceable things about the Lord is that he does not change. He is solid. His love will never quit. And yet our minds and our circumstances and our story grapples with that in an individual way. In Acts chapter 14... They'll talk about the message of the gospel, and when they're talking about it in one of the cities, they get confused for Greek gods, Barnabas and Paul, because people interpret in light of their own story. They interpret in light of what they know or think they know about God and gods. They interpret in light of what they know or think they know or know falsely or know really well about science or philosophy or religion. The book of Acts is fascinating in the way that it moves in and and out of the scriptures. In seminary, they teach it alongside the letters of the New Testament. Not all of them, but most of them, because the letters are being written in the midst of the story, though the book of Acts is written later than the majority of Paul's letters. In chapter 14 that we're going to look at today, they reference nine cities, and none of them were the cities that we have letters to. You know, most of the The letters from Paul, especially in the New Testament, are him corresponding with churches that he helped start or interacted with later, with the exception of Romans. So the Corinthian church, that one was pretty messy. We have the Galatian church. That one was messy in a more singular way than the Corinthian church. The Philippian church, I think probably Paul's favorite church. The Ephesian church. Galatian church is a group of churches. But then we're going to look at the book of Acts, and it's going to be all these different cities. There's a miracle that happens in the book of Acts. There's also a stoning. 
There are at least three different religions represented in the story, two different languages, which is maybe part of the misunderstanding of some of the people. And so you'll see Paul and Barnabas and the people listening to them and the Jews and the Gentiles wrestling with the one message that doesn't change about God and his existence, his love for all people, all people's need to be reconciled to him through the work of Christ and their own specific circumstances, cultural moment, and ways of interpreting things. I'm going to read Acts chapter 14. It's about 28 verses. If you have your Bible, Acts is uh, right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the story of the beginning of the early church. It's another chapter in the longer story of God's pursuit of his people. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, this is Paul and Barnabas, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycoonia. I actually practiced saying that and then this, I just, I can't do it. The Oklahoman in me just, nope, we're good with Native American words, but this Greek stuff. That's where I'm from, Oklahoma. And to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So a number of, of cities referenced there. Now at Lystra, there was, a, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So the reason that we know that Paul looked at him, and that's what he thought, is because Luke is the one that interviewed the early church and wrote down what happened. Now later, Luke will be on trip with Paul in the missionary journeys, and there will be even more details. But he heard about this story from the early church. This is Acts chapter 13 and 14 is Paul's first missionary journey. And so Luke interviewed people, and that's how he learned that. And I, for one, wish he had asked about six or 16 more questions about that moment. But we got that much, which is better than in some instances. In verse 11, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in their language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Paul and Barnabas don't speak this language, which is why the next couple of verses are pretty interesting. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. See, the people's circumstance would indicate that if someone shows up with great power, they're probably one of the Greek gods, and we should offer a sacrifice. Even if the people with great power say, no, don't offer a sacrifice. Because they were interpreting what they were seeing through their own storyline, which is not silly or different than regular human experience, and yet they were missing the message. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Oh, that sort of went, uh, took a sharp, horrible left turn. And dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came through Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done for them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So when I ask about the family member, I'm thinking about Paul and Barnabas teaching in the synagogue to people with a very strong knowledge of the Lord who rescues his people and pursues them, though they don't yet understand Jesus. But then they're speaking to all these Greek men and women who do not understand a living God, God. Singular, who do not understand a God that doesn't need to be appeased with sacrifices. And so in the book of Acts, there are planned sermons, there are impromptu sermons. For us, it's the same. It doesn't feel as big because most of us, in fact, none of us in the room that I'm aware of, are called to itinerant ministry. We're more like the ones who hear the story back there, but it still happens that way. Has one of your neighbors ever caught you off guard with a question? I have found that most of my neighbors at some point have brought up something of faith. They don't ask the question nearly the way I'm hoping they will. But they do ask. And it's never at a time that I'm ready. And it's always when I have somewhere to go, right? And that's why I ask, how do you summarize the gospel? You're stuck in the kitchen with that family member. And humbly they ask you a question. Let's just stop asking if we're ready. We're not going to be ready. What are we going to say? How can we talk about our faith, the love of God, and the story of Jesus' pursuit of his people? Well, the message is of a living God. This happens a lot throughout Scripture, especially in the ministry of Jesus. People will see something that is amazing, and they focus on the thing, and they miss the message. The miracles of Scripture, without fail, though though there's more to them than this, but the miracles of Scripture are there to support the message of Scripture. And when Jesus heals someone, it is because he wants them healed, and it is because he loves them, but the greater purpose 
is that we and they hear the message of the gospel of Jesus. Same thing here. Paul didn't heal the man who was crippled from birth so that the people would be amazed. Paul healed the man because then people would listen to the message, except that's not exactly what happened right then. In verses 15 through 17, it says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by sending, giving you rains from heaven and, the fruit, and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is Paul attempting to build a bridge between what they saw and thought they understood and what was actually happening which is that God exists and he's not that capricious God that looks like a more powerful version of you, Zeus or Hermes. He's a living God who existed before time and is in Trinity. And he sent his son Jesus pretty recently. You're going to recognize some of the rulers who interacted with Jesus. It was so recent. And then he died, but he rose again from the dead and then he actually ascended into heaven, an idea that would challenge the Greeks but differently than it would challenge us. The reason I keep talking about how we interpret the scripture and interpret our story and interpret what's happened to us and interpret religion in our own way is I want to remind us that that's not unnatural and that's why we go back to the text and study it. That's why sermons matter. That's why conversations with other believers matter. Is because what we need more than to spend some time thinking through our own story and how we would understand Acts chapter 14, we want to understand how God describes himself. And we want to understand how God describes us. And then we want to listen when our neighbor asks us a question and be prepared to dialogue with them. One of the most profound things we can often say is, I don't know, can I think about that a little bit? And then let's get coffee regularly struck I'll go get coffee with someone and they'll ask a question about something that I have read like nine books on but I've never heard the question asked the way they ask it and so I'm like yeah give me a second sip the coffee you know I mean I've thought about that in some respects but I don't know let me think about it some more and wrestle the way that Paul does here with the Greeks Now, one of the things that uh, the Greeks are mistaking is something that we do, too. And we do it, I think, for good reason. But we sometimes think that some people are more spiritual than we are. And depending on how you define spirituality, that's okay. But scripturally, it's not good to assume someone is more holy than anyone else. One of the ways that I notice this is sometimes when, when you guys ask me to pray, I feel like you think I have a bat phone. Like, if I ask my friend to pray, it may or may not be powerful, but I, if I ask the pastor to pray, whew, it could really speed up this whole cause and effect thing. And I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to say the next time one of you asks me to pray. Who else have you already asked? And if you're new, this doesn't apply to you. But if you've been at the church for six months or more, 
I'm going to ask you to ask other people to pray too, to remind you that we are all made in the image of God. We're all simultaneously saints and sinners if we're followers of Christ according to the scripture. And the request for prayers are all powerful, meaning uh, they're powerful to no matter who you ask if they're a follower of Jesus. And so you can ask me. And what I'm going to do is ask you who else you already talked to. And if you have two people that you've already asked, then I'd be happy to pray. And if you haven't asked anyone else to pray, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that in a moment yet. It's just a sermon illustration at this point. But don't make the same mistake in thinking that people are more or less spiritual than you, but specific to Acts chapter 14, more spiritual than you. Your prayers matter, and so do those of your friends. often an interesting way to for a friendship to grow a little deeper too. someone that you don't know very well you're struggling a lot and they ask how you're doing you could ask them to pray you know most humans pray it's another way to reach out to a neighbor in a way that's very humble to ask them to pray for you now don't be manipulative in it it has to be something that's actually going on you know don't make something up in order to get your neighbor to know you better but the message of a living god Moves and fits and starts. So I, I love this painting. And some of you have been here for years and you've heard me talk about it for years. It's on the front of your bulletin. I'll show it around a little bit. So when I preached uh, on what churches are, it was the first kind of beginning vision series that I did in 2014. I asked an abstract painter um, named Kira to paint this for me and she didn't finish it until the series was over. And it was interesting because it, it would have kind of fit that series. But it's hanging on my wall now, and it's called Asylum, which I love because it's a safe place and maybe looks like a place where crazy people gather, which is oftentimes how we look because we believe a lot of very challenging things. Here's why I love it, not only for the series on Acts, but also for Acts chapter 14 and for our understanding of the book of Acts. It's not only persecution. A couple of weeks ago, Father Tom preached and he talked about the persecution of the church. That's not the only thing that was happening to the church. They were also fighting internally. We'll look at this next week. James and Paul, James the brother of Jesus, not the apostle, and Paul and Peter get into a very heated argument about race, about legalism, about the gospel, about the church. Andrew alluded to this last week when he preached, and we'll see it again pretty soon. Barnabas and Paul had a sharp disagreement. Most of the scriptures, words are not wasted. So why didn't you just say a disagreement? Because it was a sharp disagreement. Internal strife and external persecution, and yet the gospel continues to draw people to it, and the church continues to grow. Because God's love is good. And as people come to learn about that and that through Christ they're reconciled, they want to be in the asylum with the others worshiping, doing community with them. The miracle that happens in Acts chapter 14, if we're reading it, we're like, did this do any good? It seems like it caused a lot more trouble than it's worth. Right? So Paul The Holy Spirit heals this man through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And then the city goes crazy. 
They're able to escape at one point, but then they, in, Paul ends up getting stoned. And I, I, I researched this a little bit. I don't believe this was a miracle. I believe Paul was gravely wounded and probably unconscious, and that's why they thought he was dead. And yet, during that moment is when Timothy came to faith. Timothy of the second generation of the church, of first and second Timothy. In 2 Corinthians 11.25 and 2 Timothy 3.11, this is referenced. The church moves in fits and starts. They had internal disagreements like we do. They were externally persecuted, not like we are, but like the world that actually understands what we believe does have trouble with. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're not persecuted like this. No one's going to try, I don't think, going to try and stone me or any of you today. And yet, the men and women that do not profess faith in Jesus, and, or in even some that do, that know what we actually believe, really troubled by that. And yet, one of the wonderful things about Acts chapter 14 is, we don't have letters to any of these churches, any of the nine cities that I referenced, eight of which I pronounced effectively in one I really struggled with. And the reason is, they're healthy churches. Where men and women understood their role, they understood the loving pursuit of God, and in their town, they were happy to get to know how to love God and love neighbor where they were. I want to back up for a second. So I referenced 2 Corinthians 11.25 and 2 Timothy 3.11. This is where Christianity is pushes on our minds and our hearts and the part of us that engages our faith all at the same time. Those are extant archaeological and historical evidences that these things happened. You're like, what does the word extant mean? It means we have ancient documents that prove that Paul and Barnabas and Timothy existed. And Timothy was a human being who learned about a faith from a man named Paul who used to be named Saul. And some of you are like, it's only extant evidence up until a point. There's only about 1% of you that are actually thinking in this way right now, but I still want to address that. And you're thinking, you know, scientifically, it's not extant evidence because it references a miracle. It's only in the last, like, 140 years that we have started believing quite arrogantly that we understand everything about the world and everything about how spirituality may or may not work and how power actually functions. And the reason I say that is not to try and convince someone who believes that miracles don't exist, that they do exist, but I want you to remember what science is essential for, which is how and when. And what philosophy and religion are essential for, which is why and who. And that might sound like a weird and obscure point, but it works in both ways. Science and faith are complementary. And when faith speaks to something, when it's speaking to why and who, it's essential. And when it attempts to speak to how and when, it can often be challenging because the language isn't built that way and vice versa. And the reason I want to remind you that is we're about to do something strange, mystical, sacramental with the Lord's Supper, but it's based on real people who saw a real Jesus really rise from the dead after predicting it and then float into heaven. And you're like, that all sounds weird to me. And we have historical records of the first and the second and even the third and the fourth generation of the people who talked to the people who saw it. 
And so Christianity does include lots of challenging beliefs, and it is also historical and evidential and archaeological. And that might sound like a tangent to you, but that is in many ways the most fundamental I don't want to say this. When I am struggling, the historical aspect of the Christian faith is the first thing that encourages me most of the time. And this is happening locality by locality. What? What's happening? Verse 22a. A meaning just the first part of it. Verse 22, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's what we're doing here this morning. Not a faith. Not faith. The faith. Do you mind turning to your neighbor and say, continue in the faith? That's part of why we're here. To encourage one another in community to continue in the faith. I love the middle of this because if we just had strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, that would be sweet. And yet Paul's probably still bruised from his stoning. So then he also says, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? The shorthand of that is it is going to continue to sting and hurt until Jesus returns. I don't listen to to too much Christian music these days, but what I hear when I read that is, in the world you will have trouble, but I leave you my peace. That where I am, there you may also be. Rich Mullins. Any Rich Mullins fans? Oh, he's a delight, isn't he? He can sing it really fast. In the world you will have trouble, but I leave you my peace. And then they're commended. Where I lost my place. Verse 26, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. This is the wrapping of the missionary journey of Paul and of Barnabas. But I want to remind you that it's connected to appointing elders. So it was happening location by location. Again, many of us are not going to travel the world like Paul did, like Barnabas sometimes did. And that is essential. It is just as, if not more essential to the faith that some of us stay put in our locality. In fact, most of us stay put in our locality. And we learn to love God and neighbor where we are. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has appointed you a lover of God and neighbor exactly where you are. To His glory, for the good of neighbor and for your own good. You are an empowered agent of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, where you work and where you play and where you rest. You are freed by the love of Christ into love and peace, right living, and His joy right where He has you. Locality by locality, in the midst of the 
all the interesting stuff that happens in Acts chapter 14. Paul heals a man because he could look intently and had some viewpoint that I don't think most of us have where he saw the man's faith and the Holy Spirit healed him, and that's amazing. Then the Greeks misunderstand it, start calling him Hermes, so he's not in charge. They thought Barnabas was in charge. I wonder if Barnabas was taller than Paul, and that's why they thought he was Zeus. We do have some descriptions that are not historically vetted like the rest of scriptures about the description of Paul. He's apparently not a lot to look at if you buy into some 4th and 5th century sources. Anyway, in the midst of all the amazing stuff that happens in Acts chapter 14, they mention they appointed elders in every town, which reminds us that this happens location by location, and that's the church. That's the gathering of Christ followers, commended to the grace of God. If you were paying attention, if you have any sense of the geography, if you're like me when you're 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, maybe 17, you would look at the maps instead of listen to the sermon, and you're like, how come Paul went like this on the missionary journeys? The reason was to check back in with the local elders to make sure that they were studying the word, to make sure that they were taking care of one another, to make sure they knew that they had a role in that locality. That's why the route goes back. Even if you're just reading it, and you're like, how come Antioch gets mentioned so many times? Because they were going back and checking in location to location. One of the things that they were doing was they were taking the Lord's Supper together. This was something they were just beginning to understand. It's something that Jesus talked about a lot. And I think it was one of the most challenging things that he taught while he was doing his earthly ministry. And then the night before he went to the cross, he taught on it more directly. And all these cities were doing it in Lystra and in Derby and in Pisidia and in Pamphylia and Perga and Italia and Antioch. 2,000 years ago, they were learning to receive the bread and the wine. For us, it's unfermented wine as a sign and a seal that they were Jesus's and he is theirs. 